CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 37 Nationalism in the Scope of Patriarchy While nationalism has been largely recognized and researched as one of the most powerful ideologies of modern times, its connection with morality and sexual norms started to receive attention relatively recently. In Europe, this phenomenon has taken root at different paces and scales, marking the continent political cultures and multiple identities. But how is a national discourse or identity constructed? How does it intersect with other dimensions of human life? Is it social, private, political, or all of it? Is nationalism a gender phenomenon? To answer these questions, in this episode, we will discuss the interplay between nationalism, gender, and sexualities, deconstructing it through a feminist perspective and disclosing this topic focusing on the Western Balkans. Welcome to CEE, Central Europe Explained. I am Chiara Maria Murgia, project assistant at the IDM, and I'm hosting today's episode on nationalism in the scope of patriarchy. A very interesting topic I will approach and discuss with Elisa Helms, Associated Professor at the Department of Gender Studies of the Central European University here in Vienna. Hi, Elisa, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks. So, Elisa, your research interests include the gender nationalism, ethnography of post-conflict and post-socialist society, as well as borders, migration, and European identity. Today, we'll discuss the interplay between nationalism, sexualities, and gender, topics that for a long time were seen and treated separately and only recently gained research attention. However, it is interesting that concepts such as nation and respectabilities or customs gained momentum in the same period between the late 18th and early 19th centuries. I would first like to understand if there is actually a relation between these categories. Therefore, I would ask you to provide us with a brief overview of gender and nationalism to understand how gender is constitutive of nationalism. I'll start with this sort of resurgence of analyses of nationalism that sort of happened in the late 70s and 80s um, in the English language academia. And the feminists and gender critique really sort of followed very soon after that, even though it sort of took off more in the, in the 90s. This critique was really pointing to the ways in which nationalism has been historically formed, how it's really contingent on historical developments. And you have the famous phrase from Benedict Anderson of nationalism as an imagined community where the members of the community will never meet everyone in the, in the nation, but they do know that they're out there, that they're there because a nation exists in the realm of discourse and imagination. It's constructed. This doesn't mean that, that it's fiction, that it's not real and it doesn't have real effects, but that we have to pay attention to these contingent moments in history where certain nations get formed in a particular way. And this means that a nation can have very different elements from one to the other. They always distinguish themselves as unique in terms of national essence. And these are through usually markers of like religion, language, common history, customs, and these kind of things. And as I said, the gender critiques, feminist critiques of nation and nationalism really started in the mid 80s. And what they show 
relentlessly really through lots of different case studies and historical analyses is that even though gender is invisible many times because it's unmarked, it's because it comes from a sort of unsaid masculine perspective uh, very often. Um, and when I talk here about gender, about masculinity and femininity, speaking separately from what actual men and women and other people actually do, um, I'm talking about ascribed roles um, and expected roles. So these critiques really showed how gender is fundamentally constitutive of nation and nationalism in the way that they're imagined and constructed, not just an additional factor or a side issue as they're often treated as, but really fundamental to the way in which nationalism functions also. Um, we can see a sort of similar patriarchal logic that's widespread in a lot of nationalist projects because they are a reflection of dominant ideas about gender that were around in the era and European context in which the idea of nation and nation states or self-determination of nations really arose in most cases. And so we have, you know, if you think about the symbols of nation, they're very often feminized. Woman is seen as the territory or the territory is feminized. We have epic figures like Marianne in France or Britannia in the US where I was born and raised. Um, you have the Statue of Liberty as a symbol of nation, but you also have masculine symbols like Uncle Sam, more militaristic symbol. You have talk about the nation as the motherland, um, which gives you a lot of different uh, sort of ways of thinking about the nation and our relation and our expected relation to the nation in terms of a mother who needs to be protected from attack or a mother who nurtures us versus a nation that's referred to as a fatherland. And so they get gendered in different ways at different times. And these are ideas that are sort of, there are symbolic relationships, but they're also reflected in practice in laws, policies, patterns of war violence, customs, how people relate to the nation, how they're invited to relate to it, or how they might be excluded from it or not adhering to its ideals. And these are um, ideal roles that are often very gendered. So the typical pattern is that men are called to be actors of consequence, leading the nation, fighting to defend it, even sacrificing their lives, while women are given sort of more passive roles as victims or potential victims in need of protection. Women are often given the roles as reproducers of the nation, both physically by giving birth, but also by nurturing young children and teaching them the ways of the nation and the culture, the language, um, religion, customs, etc. And one of the things that's also really common to Nationalist Project is either a theoretical potential or an actual situation of war. And this is where you get uh, very common constructions of other nations, enemy nations as other, as inferior. And this is done very often through images of gender and sexuality. Men are charged with protecting their women from sexual assault and rape while they might assault the women of the other group. Um, and these are messages sent from men to men through women's bodies in a way that is seen as not only conquering women's bodies, the property of other men, but also the territory of the nation. So the symbolic and the action, the practice, the actual get intertwined. And so, as I said, these can be seen as very European patterns and there are a lot of debates about that. They take different forms in different contexts. 
But it's important to point out that nationalism is not always or necessarily oppressive either. Um, many people identify with these roles, especially when nationalism is aimed at liberation. So you can think of nationalist movements, also independence movements from colonial powers or an oppressive state. And there are lots of ways in which nationalism invites people to, to be a part of a collective that, that is really inviting to a lot of people or attractive to a lot of people. Thank you, Lisa, for such a broad introduction to this topic. This maybe could bring our conversation into the Western Balkans context. During your career, you explored such topics in this regional framework of Central Eastern Europe, the former Yugoslavia, as well as Bosnia and Herzegovina in particular. And here in this region, especially in the Western Balkans, nationalism, as well as gender identities, appear to be often at the core of the political narratives. And in particular, in the Western Balkans, nationalism is like in the rest of Europe, quite widespread. Yet uh, the way national rhetorics are rooted, built and embraced by political elites in the region presents some peculiarities. And among them, the relevance uh, religious and ethnic uh, identities and belongings uh, gained, especially in the aftermath of the wars of the 90s are particular present in the national discourses. Therefore, I would like to ask you how do categories such as ethnicity, religion, nationality, and gender interact to shape nationalistic discourses in the region? Also, I was wondering if you could provide us with some examples from the Yugoslavian period to the present days to grasp this discourse evolution. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's really important to, to remember that sort of dominant ideas about nation, about a nation state, about how the state should be related to the people have been taken from European models that um, people in the Balkans and Southeast Europe have been looking towards and seeing as sort of models. But of course, yes, they take on their specificities in different contexts. So Right. I mean, even in the Yugoslav times, we can see that um, during the, especially in the 80s, when nationalist sentiment was getting mobilized again, leading towards what we now know is the dissolution of the country of Yugoslavia. So already in the 80s, gender was really central to these mobilizations of national feelings. If you think about the crises in Kosovo, questions over the revocation of autonomy of the the autonomous region of Kosovo under Slobodan Milosevic and the mobilization of workers there. When Milosevic told the crowd, no one shall beat you, he was telling Serbs, but also male Serb workers um, that, and appealing to their sense of masculine pride, which is then being ascribed to the nation that they would not be um, subdued, that no one would have power over them. And at this time, Two, there was also um, a kind of moral panic spread about stories of, of Albanian men raping Serb women. This was later disproved, but it became this story of panic and fear, which is the sort of classic othering through primitive sexuality of other males. 
there were rumors of even homosexual desires on the part of these rapists. Um, there was a story of, of a Serb man who was assaulted with a bottle, sort of playing on this idea that Albanian men were hypersexual and not normal, um, not following into the sort of respectable civilized roles of sexuality and gender. And one of the, one of the bigger demonstrations that started happening at the time in Kosovo was by Serb women who felt offended in the face of suggestions about their sexual res respectability and their sense of fear as targets of sexual assault. Let me just be clear that, that no one was paying attention then to sexual assault perpetrated by Serbs on Serbs or Albanians on Albanians. The point was that it, it was cross-ethnic rape that was seen as, as significant and something to react to. There was nothing nothing about the protection of women in, in a sort of feminist vein here. At the time of the disintegration of Yugoslavia, that was, that's one example of how gender and sexuality was getting mobilized along with national sentiment. Um, but it was happening in all parts of the country. There's a book by Dubravka Kajar called The Body of War, which shows this beautifully in sort of what she calls the media war and how nations were being imagined through heterosexual masculinity, the territories and female bodies were being trade as, and then later physically treated as potential victims, as already in the category of, of victimhood. And so they needed to be objects of protection. Um, there were again, um, national others being ridiculed as inferior in their manliness. There are images of, for example, in Croatia, brave soldiers defending the feminized territory, the state of Croatia that they had finally um, managed to declare independence of, with the media accounts of sexual violence against males were being reported in the Croatian media. They left Croatian men completely out of the picture. And instead you had a picture of Serb attackers attacking Muslim male victims, placing the taint of homosexuality on both of those nations and leaving the Croatian men in Croatia in a state of purity. Also, women within the nation were suddenly placed in this position of reproducers. They're being admonished for not having more children. Abortion was lamented not as killing babies or fetuses, but as killing members of the nation. So Croat or Hungarians, and that, that was also something happening in Hungary at the time. Thank you for uh, such a broad and amazing answer, Elisa. Talking about the war in the 90s, uh, like in every war, there was a strong element of uh, brutal violence against women and their bodies, especially Muslim women from the Bosnia community. Um, the gender dimension of violence and brutality was actually largely remarked in the post-war period when new divisions segmentations of society and new national identity were reshaped accordingly. So in this process, how victimhood did shape and define the national struggle towards national identity in the post-war societies? So does it have gender implications and biases, actually? Victimhood is a huge part of um, national narratives in former Yugoslavia and beyond that, of course. All of these nations that came out of socialist Yugoslavia have been actually uh, competing national narratives of victimhood. And as I argue in my book called um, Innocence and Victimhood, the, the point of claiming this victim position is not about 
being a victim and the kind of suffering that that entails, but it's about achieving a position of moral purity and innocence, which then um, justifies other moves of the nation and places the nation above um, judgment. In striving for uh, achieving the position of the victim, what needs to be established is the victim's complete innocence, not being implicated in anything political or military or any sort of decisions. Um, and here's where female victims become the perfect symbol of this. They can be seen as outside of politics and military because these are spheres that are considered male dominated in the first place. And so there were really two iconic images of victimhood for Bosniak narratives. And these are women survivors of wartime rape. And the other was women of Srebrenica, the widows and mothers who survived the genocide, the killings of their male kin, their husbands, sons, over 8,000 men were killed in the space of a couple of days there. So the, these women survivors have also become a national symbol. What I argue is that they are a sort of more comfortable symbol of national innocence and victimhood because rape survivors always carry a sense of unease. Was she really not complicit? Did she really not do something to provoke this attack? Um, the element of sexuality always introduces the, these sort of questions as feminist activists know from um, campaigns to destigmatize rape in general. And so you still have this sort of um, stigma attached to women rape survivors. So rape survivors also allow for attention to be put on the barbarity of the enemy, but it can also call attention to the failure of the nation's men to protect their women. And so this is always the risk in relying on these very patriarchal logics of nationhood. And in the case of women of Srebrenica, they, they become a more convenient symbol because you don't have the sexual aspect, even though there were sexual assaults during the fall of Srebrenica, and there were women who disappeared and were killed. But this was a gendered crime as well, because men were targeted for killings because they were men and because they were Bosnia, while women were more or less transported to, to safety. So the, the widows and mothers of Srebrenica can call attention to the loss of those men, but also to those men as members of families for their kinship roles, which also draws attention away from any military roles that men of the community and of the Bosniak community in general might have been undertaking. And so it allows for the emphasis on the cruelty and the criminality of the enemy as well, while taking away from the association with action with decision making with military action associated with that group and with with the nation itself and again the goal is to achieve a position of moral purity for the nation thank you elisa for the insightful answer you have provided us uh, with and stemming from the connection you have so far highlighted between nationalism gender religion ethnicity I was reasoning that there is a link between the way nation is narrated and the way heteronormativity as well as claims on human bodies are framed. Also, coming back to uh, Benedict Anderson, imaging communities that you have quoted at the beginning of this uh, interview, 
I was uh, wondering how other people whose identities are not shaped according to religious, ethnic, and nationalistic belongings are uh, fitting in this national discourse that is narrated by current political elites in the region and in Western Balkan countries. Are there any grounds for claiming that non-normative sexualities are affected by the interplay of the categories embedded in the nationalistic discourse at present? Sure, there are always people who don't conform to these patterns. So the patterns I've been tracing um, have mostly been very kind of conservative, patriarchal notions of gender and sexuality that are embedded into nationalist discourses. But I alluded a bit just now to some other kind of configurations that um, nationalisms can take. So there's one that has been called femo-nationalism to describe what happens in mostly in West European countries where national identity gets described as being feminist, as being providing equality to women because it's being described in opposition to oppressive patriarchal cultural practices of, in this case, Muslim immigrants, mostly um, in Western Europe or what's been called homo-nationalism, where national identity gets described as being tolerant and open to LGBT people, providing rights to LGBT people in contrast to an ethnic, racial, or national other, which in this case, again, um, mostly Muslim immigrants that living in, in West European countries, get then constructed as homophobic, as intolerant, as violent towards their own family members when they break these very rigid rules or don't wear hijab or um, engage in non-heterosexual sex. So there are always different configurations that national identity can take. And this is just exactly Anderson's point is that there's no definition of a nation per se. It depends on how it gets imagined in a particular um, time and place. And these things are always being contested and they're changing all the time, which is what we're seeing. So we have right now, uh, Prime Minister of Serbia is a lesbian and this has caused lots of head scratching. And um, the assumption was that she was appointed by Vucic, who is actually really in charge as a sort of way to pander to the EU to say, look, we're progressive. and and tolerant and embracing European values, whatever that means. Um, so Brnovic was a really big disappointment to people who had hoped for more LGBT rights and more visibility to queer people. Um, she hasn't really addressed that. And so it's been more of an anomaly that proves the rule than um, anything that's opening up the, the regular sort of scaffolding of power. Um, and the logics by which it holds. I see. And also, do you think that uh, LGBTQI movements in the region, Serbia, as well as in Bosnia, these movements are somehow embracing national identities or you see them as uh, bringing a separate uh, rhetoric, which is uh, like building identities uh, regardless uh, of the traditional grounds, uh, typical 
in the region, such as ethnicity and religion and so on? Well, sometimes it's, there's very little space to claim um, belonging in the nation, which that's a secular belonging, that's uh, a belonging that's based on citizenship rather than ethnic or religious identity. You know, there are different configurations in Bosnia and Herzegovina from Croatia or Serbia um, or any of the other countries in, in, in the region. Kosovo is maybe really important to point out as a, a place where nationalism has been a lot more of a sort of liberatory force um, because of the oppressive power exerted by Serbia. And so there's maybe more of a call to identify with the, with the national project there than, than in other places. But, you know, I think a lot of, let's say, non-conforming people ask, you know, why can't I be a member of the nation and be a feminist, be LGBT, be, um, you know, critical yeah. of these um, conservative forces at the same time. Of course, the way that the ideology is constructed, as I said, leaves very little space for others, um, people who don't conform to those very rigid rules that are, are set out. And even people who do conform on paper don't necessarily agree with it. So you have non-heterosexual people being really kind of seen as a threat if, the nation is built on this idea that, you know, it has to reproduce through heteropatriarchal marriage. And so that any sex that can be seen as non-reproductive becomes a threat. Um, gay men become a threat to the masculinity of the nation. There are all of these sort of symbolic and practical ways in which they're seen as a threat or written out of membership in the nation, especially when they start challenging the, the very fundamentals of nation, which is built on a very binary patriarchal understanding of gender, sexuality, family, kinship. Nation is very often seen as a family writ large, so a, a large family that's organized based on very traditional um, ideas of family and kinship. Um, and so this is why there's so little space sometimes for um, carving out a place for non-normative sexuality and for all others who don't don't conform. Thank you. Thank you, Elisa, for this answer and also for bringing concrete examples uh, to better explain how these uh, uh, symbolic uh, features uh, are communicating and are in line with uh, uh, discourses, uh, rhetoric on uh, national grounds. Also, I um, do believe that uh, this uh, talk is offering precious elements to reflect upon and concepts and categories that uh, uh, very often appear as a given. So in conclusion, I would just ask you to, to recommend a piece of art or literature or music uh, to continue deconstructing nationalism also in the scope of uh, patriarchy and uh, heteronormativity. Yeah, I think there are lots of different examples I could bring up in terms of art and film from the region. I'll focus on Bosnia. The starkest examples I can think of is a exhibit I saw from Maya Bajevic, a, a piece she did over 20 years ago, which was simply a dress hanging on a hanger in, in the gallery. And the dress was made out of cloth on which had been printed a map of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And that sort of 
sums up all of this symbolics of gendered nationalism, as well as the way in which the war violence took shape in, in Bosnia, especially the sexual assaults on, on women's bodies in the name of nation. Also, I have to mention films because those are maybe more accessible to people. And by necessity, so many of artists and filmmakers from the region have taken up these themes, especially female artists. But I would maybe just point out Yasmila Zbanic. She has several films that are well-known, maybe Grbovic is the best known, um, which is a very personal look at the aftermath of wartime rape. And it's very subtle. It doesn't have a lot of in-your-face, you know, war and nationalism um, scenes, but you get a very subtle understanding of that relationship to the war violence between a woman and her daughter, between what society is expecting of them in the aftermath of the war. And Zhbanich also has another film called For Those Who Can Tell No Tales, which is about a spa hotel that became a rape camp during the Bosnian War, which is also pretty harrowing. Or her newest film, Quo Vadis Aida, which is about the fall of Srebrenica, which focuses on a female translator who's trying to save her male family members. And of course she doesn't, but that's another example of gendered ethnicized violence that happened during the Bosnian War, but that can speak to so many other themes that we see in other, other contexts in the world today. Yes, I think uh, we have a lot of materials here. And uh, after this uh, talk with you, Elisa, I think that uh, it's going to be even more possible and easier to grasp all of these dynamics uh, that are not uh, often uh, coming up to the surface, but they require the, uh, the tools and the awareness in order to be effectively grasped and under our attention. So thank you very much for helping us here, deconstructing uh, nationalism and uh, its uh, gendered uh, dimension. Well, thanks very much for having me and for asking me um, to, to speak. There's obviously, you know, plenty more to say. I think the word you used, dynamics, is really key. Um, and that's what we need to just remember, that these are constantly changing and contested patterns that can take to different shapes and different contexts, but we can watch for these relationships um, and, and how people are mobilizing them for different purposes. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e.honteberry at idm.at The email is in the description below. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Erstegroup, with the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM. 
Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.